Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. All right? It says this. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who was over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. And he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ." From him, the whole body, joined together and joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The word that we have chosen to look at today and, and make sense of this part of, of Ephesians is a word that uh, I don't know that I would have used a year ago, but I've just been in several contexts where the word has been used. Maybe it's a new cool word, I don't know, but it's the word capacity. Um, and, and it's, it, it, I put it in your, put the definition on your sermon sheet. Capacity is defined as the amount that something or someone can contain, can contain or produce. And as I read the book of Ephesians chapter four, these early chapters, as we kind of transition for where Paul has said, this is who we are in Christ. This is everything, verse chapters one through three, all that God has done for us in Christ. And now he moves into this place where, okay, now we're going to apply this. What does this look like in real life? I think the word capacity, I read it in a commentary, uh, so it's an old word, but I read it in a commentary and I thought, man, that's it. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the ability to take normal, everyday, um, and in Ephesians language, formerly dead, now resurrected in Christ, formerly divided, but now united in Christ. God's able to take those people, broken, lost, uh, confused, with baggage, all those people, and somehow begin to fill them with his fullness and their capacity to change and influence their world begins to grow. And God can take a ragtag group of people that may not have much to their name apart from Jesus, but because Jesus is a part of their life now, their capacity for influence and, and, and just kingdom, God giving God glory and kingdom work begins to grow. And so the word capacity is what we're going to look at today. And, and I did notice after we printed these that if you look at your sermon outline, the second sentence, if you scratch out the word is, that actually makes sense as a sentence, okay? I, I noticed that afterwards that it doesn't make sense. So scratch out the word is, and all of a sudden in the second sentence, and all of a sudden it's coherent, okay? So uh, you can do that. Some of you are probably going to be confused by that, and uh, um, so I want to alleviate that confusion for you. Uh, so the word capacity, 
is the ability to be able to say, you know what, I, I once was not, or I once was small, but now through Christ and through what God has done for me, I am able, I am capable. There is a capacity of my life to do more than I could have before. And I want to start off with one of the dumbest preacher jokes I've ever heard. I like it, though. It's one of my favorites. So pay attention. It kind of has to do with, with this time of year um, and kind of not. It just fits. Um, there was once a man who was driving down the road at nighttime in a rainstorm. And we'll pretend there's thunder and lightning because it is the end of October. And that's how every uh, story this time of year starts, okay? It was a dark, dreary night. And so he's driving down the road in, in the country and, and his car breaks down. And so he looks up ahead of him and he, he sees a monastery down the road. And so he, he wandered down there for some shelter to hang out with the friars and the monks. They were about to eat supper and so they invited him to join him. And he wasn't expecting much um, since it was just a monastery, but he sat down and, and it was delicious. It was fish and chips, the best fish and chips he'd ever had in his life. And so he insisted after the meal on meeting the cooks. So he was taken back and he met Brother Charles and Brother Michael. And he said to them, that was the best fish and chips I have ever had in my life. Who cooked what? And so Brother Charles said, well, I'm the fish fryer. And, and Michael said, and I'm the what? I'm the chip monk. Get it? Oh, okay, very good. All right, you have to stay with the monk and fryer thing. Anyway, but <laughs> I told you it was dumb. But it illustrates the idea that all of us, no matter where we are, can make a difference in some way, shape, or form, right? So whether you're a chipmunk or a fish fryer, those are good things to be. Uh, but I, I want us to talk and reflect upon this passage today and, and think about as you walk through this passage how, um, how God grows our capacity because all of us have potential. We are all, as long as there is breath in our lungs, we have capacity, uh, we have potential to become people of more capacity. And, and this passage is really not talking about us individually. Um, it's talking about us corporately. But how does the corporate, how does the group become uh, to be a people of more capacity? It begins as each one individually begins to grow. And so... Um, I think all of the things we say today are going to apply to both. So we're going to look at three things in this passage that I believe God can use to grow our capacity to make a difference in our communities, in our homes, in our workplaces, through, through our body here. Number one is this. I think we grow our capacity for God to work in and through us when we fight for a Christ-honoring unity. The beginning of Ephesians 4, it begins to unpack this, this thing that, that as Paul transitions from everything he has said in these first three chapters, as he has said, you know what, this is, this is all that you are in Christ, the very first thing he says is, talks about unity. He talks about how God's people not only are together from heaven's perspective, they're all brought together in Christ, but he says, I want you to experience that. I want you to live that out in a way that is seen and visible around you, not only for you, but because of the witness that it is to the world that you and I, when we are united, when we walk in unity uh, as brothers and sisters, Jesus would say in John chapter 17 that our uh, capacity 
to influence and witness dramatically increases. Listen to what Jesus says. It's not on the screen, so listen closely. It says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So again, he's praying. Not only are we together here, but we're together with him. So both horizontally and vertically. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, as we are one, again, unity, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, what will happen when that happens? Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as I, as you have loved me. So Jesus would say that our capacity grows as our unity grows. And so Paul goes in these first three verses here, three, four verses, six verses actually, to kind of give us a, a path, I, I think, that helps us to build unity. And so how does unity begin to happen in a church, in a group of people? It doesn't happen because we all like the same things. We all are the same person. That's impossible. In fact, the text itself implies the need for these traits and these things we're going to look at implies that unity is not normal. It is not natural. It is, it is, a, is a God thing. And so where does it come from? I think in verse one, we're gonna walk back through this passage, uh, verse, first six verses, and just wanna show you a few things. Put, uh, look at verse one. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And so Paul begins with a, an appeal. Now, the you up there is, is plural, I think in Greek. So it should, if as, as a good Missouri translation would say, I urge you all, or y'all, to do this, all right? So it's a plural thing. It's, it's all of you to do this. But in order for all of us to do it, individually, I have to choose to do it. And so I want to look at this from the personal perspective, even though that word you is a plural word. So what is he urging us to do? Where does unity begin? It begins when I personally am choosing to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. What's the calling? Just go back and read verses chapters one through three again in Ephesians. That's the calling over our life, this grand, glorious thing that God is wanting to do in Christ in you. And so he says, because of this great calling, I want you to live a life. Now, some of your translations, the New American Standard, in fact, has the word walk. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. And so just beginning to ask the question of ourselves, both personally and corporately, is, is whenever you make a decision, is this thing worthy of the calling that I've received? In light of the calling that, that God has put on my life in Christ, is this does this measure up to that? Does this shun that? Does this, is this contrary to that? And so as we make decisions, I have to be, have a commitment in my life for unity to begin to happen in Christ. It, it happens because individuals are choosing of themselves to say, you know what, it starts with me. It starts with me that I'm going to walk in a manner that is worthy of, of Christ. I love what one commentator wrote when he said this, that while the cross is the instrument of reconciliation, the church is supposed to be the illustration of reconciliation. And as you look through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, just all the stuff is that God is bringing everything together under the head, which is Jesus. And so all things are coming together. And those are great claims, bold claims in an out-of-controlled, crazy world. And so where do we begin to see glimpses of that? It's supposed to be the church. It's supposed to be God's people. That, that while what is true in, in, in theory in chapters 1 through 2 and 3 the church is supposed to be an illustration of that reconciliation that God is working out among us. And so chapter four starts where I live, where I am. And it requires a determination on my part to say, I am going to try my best with God's help, with God's 
work and spirit at work in my life, I'm going to do my best to live a worthy life. I am going to commit myself to be that myself. That's where unity begins. And so growing a Christ-honoring unity begins with striving to be the best version of me in Jesus that I can be. It's about striving that says, you know what, I'm going to commit myself to be the best version of me in Jesus that I can possibly be. And I'm going to work for that. And in fact, the word that, that he uses in verse 3 to make every effort, uh, that implies um, effort. It implies they want to. Some of your versions say that I was, uh, be eager to do this. It's a want to thing. And so really unity begins there. Um, so it begins with ambition that I want to walk that. But it, in verses two and three, there's an attitude that I have to bring towards other people, right? So I have to focus on me first. Unity always begins with me, but it always, it can't be just me. There's no unity in just one. Um, there's, if there's gonna be unity amongst brothers and sisters, there must be an attitude then that I bring towards other people. Look at verses two and three. With him when he says this, be completely, listen to these words, Humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Again, there's our word, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit to the bond of peace. And we'll leave that up there for a second. Um, actually, I won't. Uh, those, some of those words imply some things, right? You ever, we've all done the whole thing. Well, you never pray for patience because what's God going to give you? He's going to give you circumstances that you're going to need patience. He doesn't just give you patience. He gives you circumstances where you're going to learn patience. And so when I say, God, uh, I want to bring towards brothers and sisters... Humility, gentleness, patience. I want to bear with one another in love that Christ has given to us. I want to do that. But those are hard things, right? I laughed harder than I should have at this picture I'm going to show you here. Um, this came up on my Facebook page of the day, how I look when I'm trying to be patient with my daughter's attitude. Um, I just laughed harder at that than I should have because of the week that I was having. And uh, now, in fairness, she could write the same thing and scratch out daughter and put dad, okay? So I'm not picking on anybody when I say that because it's, it's a two-way street. Uh, so you can take that off there. He's... He, 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 yeah. He's more handsome and, and, and funny than I am, and so we'll take Chris Farley off the screen. But, but again, when, when we think about humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another, what is the attitude that Paul is calling us to? He says, you know what, in dealing with each other, boy, we're not going to measure up. We're going to disappoint each other. We're going to be in situations where I have to choose, am I going to insist on my own way or am I going to be humble? Am I going to be impatient and rude and demanding of other people or am I going to show patience to people that are still in process just like I'm still in process? And that attitude that he illustrates allows unity to begin to, to grow. Again, I'm giving my best effort. The attitude of patience and gentleness and kindness and love towards other people is going to allow that environment of, boy, we don't have to be perfect. We're helping each other. We're encouraging each other. We're, we're walking together in this thing. Um, and so there's an attitude that we must bring to that that allows unity to happen. So there's ambition, there's an attitude. And then finally, it's this in verses four uh, through six. When Paul says this, um, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called. And he begins to list all these ones, seven of them, in fact. And so as he's talking about fighting for this Christ-honoring unity uh, with ambition for myself and the right attitude towards others, he wants me to be attentive to something key. Now, in the verse before, it said, I want you to keep the unity of the Spirit. That's a weird phrase. What does that mean? That means in, in God's perspective that when God calls his church together, wherever it may be scattered, when God's, from God's perspective, he looks on the earth, there is only one church. There's not a hundred of them. There's one, there's one group of people that are his own. 
okay? And, and so then he begins to, to remind us that these are the things that bring you together. These are the uniting things. It's not about your political party, your economic status, the skin, colors of your skin, uh, where you went to school. None of those things, those are all gone. The things that bring us together are these kinds of things. They are things that connect us to the Lord. In fact, you've got the Lord himself in all three of his persons up there. You've got the Spirit. You've got the Lord, who is Jesus. You've got the Father, which is God the Father. And so you've got the God, God, the, Father, or God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all interspersed in this, this little the list. And then there's the ways of responding, uh, that there's one Lord, there's one faith, that we were called, uh, one baptism, all those kind of things that, that call us together and unite us and remind us that all of the old me, all of the things that in my humanness I would cling to and say, this is who I am, it is gone. It is gone. I am a new person in Christ. And the only thing that matters in me is my status before Christ. And when you and I gather and we stand side by side, none of the old things matter because there's only one thing that has brought us together. It is, it is those things. And so that unity has a foundation that we must be attentive to. And so he comes and he reminds us that if we're going to grow our capacity tapping into the truth from God's perspective. These are the things that bring his people together. And then we bring the right attitude of saying, okay, I know we're all trying to live up to that and we're not doing it perfectly. And so I'll, I'll show you grace, you show me grace. And there's this environment where unity can begin to happen and grow. And when unity grows, our capacity to glorify God through our life and through our church, our capacity to be difference makers, our capacity to become more than we were before Jesus just grows because unity has that effect as God enters into that and he begins to grow our capacity. And so the first thing I want you to see this morning is just the capacity and that we grow in capacity as we, as we fight for Christ-honoring unity. The second thing I want you to see is this, that we grow our capacity for God to work in and through us when we find and use our Christ-given ministry gifting. That's a mouthful, I know. That we find and we use our Christ-given ministry gifting. Sometimes when I have conversations with people, they ask me the question, especially if they're not church people, especially non-Christian people, they ask me, why did you become a preacher? Why did you want to go into this whole ministry thing? And, and it's a long, awkward conversation. They don't, they don't usually get it. It's fine. And, and it's hard to explain, I guess, sometimes. And so, but... Um, when Paul talks about ministry gifting in this passage, he does talk about leadership, but where he begins in verse 7 is that every one of you, by God, through Christ, through his spirit, were given a gift. Uh, when he talks about grace, as we'll see here in verse 7, the grace that was given to us, he's not talking about saving grace, he's talking about gifting grace. That every one of you, every one of you sitting in here, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been given a gift of grace to serve, to do something. You have a ministry gifting in your life. And so sometimes the only people who look at ministry gifting, well, who are people who are going to do, go do it for a living. But how does capacity for kingdom impact grow? It grows when not just the preacher peoples see that as, hey, I got a ministry gifting. Maybe I don't, maybe I do. Uh, who knows? Uh, we can debate that later. Um, but it's when everybody sitting in the chairs or the pews uh, begins to see, hey, I've got a ministry gifting too. 
And I'm going to begin to use that for God. And I'm going to begin to surrender that and, and use that for the good of other people. And so every time another believer discovers and begins to pursue their ministry gifting, capacity grows. Our ability to serve and make a difference grows. And so Paul, in this next few verses, he kind of unpacks that. Um, and I love this phrase. Um, I don't think I put it on the screen. So listen closely to this. That Christ has gifted his body, his church, with spiritual capacity to represent him in the world and to do what he would be doing if he were here in the flesh. And so when we talk about what does that ministry gifting mean, it means he gives gifts to us so that we could be doing in this community what Jesus would be doing if Jesus was physically in this community. And so that means lots of different things. And Paul's list here in Ephesians is different than it is in other places, and we'll look at that. In fact, in January, we're going to do a whole series on this thing called Made for More, of how we plug this in and we use this and we unpack this and, 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 and just personally begin to bring that home to us. But again in verse 7, he says, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So Christ has given gifts to his people um, to do wherever they may be. Whatever community they may be in, this country, other countries, all around this globe, wherever there are Christian people, that they would be doing what Jesus would be doing if Jesus was physically present there. And so that gifting that he gives to us is, is important. And then Paul does a weird thing. If you, got, if you kind of got confused in verses 8 through 10, you think there's all this ascension, descension, what in the world is he talking about? And really what he's talking about, he's using a metaphor that made a lot of sense in that day. It may not make as much sense to us, but I think you'll, you'll get it. Um, in fact, we just, uh, we had some little kids over to our house and we watched the Narnia movie. And so you see this, if you go back to that, that time, of, time period of kings and queens and all that stuff, that when one king would go out to battle another king, and if this, if this king won the battle, he would take plunder from the other nation, right? So he would take all their gold, their treasuries, all that stuff, maybe bring back some servants, all kinds of things he would bring back. And when he came back to his home city, he would throw open the gates and all the people would come and they would line the, the, the streets for the parade, the victory parade. Um, and as he came through, the king would be in the front and all the plunder would be behind, all, showing off all the things that, that we had just won through the leadership of our great king. And so the king then would parade those things to the city and then he would begin to give out gifts uh, <clears throat> to the people so that they could share in the, <clears throat> in the joy of the plunder. Uh, and they would be blessed by that. And that's the metaphor that Paul uses in verse 8 when he says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, when Jesus ascended, when after he died, was buried, rose, and then he ascended back to heaven, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. And he, the gifts he's talking about here are spiritual gifts, are, are gifts that God can use in our life. And then he, in verse 9 and 10, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended? So just follow the story of Jesus. We're coming up to Christmas time, right? Jesus came from heaven, descended to earth, uh, lived, died, buried, rose, and then he ascended. So just follow that pattern as he's talking about this. Who is, but he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. But when he ascended, he didn't just leave us and desert us. He left us gifts through his spirit that we can go and serve and use to minister for his name. And this is how it looks in the real world. Look at verse 11 and 12. It says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for works of service. And so what Paul focuses in on are leadership gifts of how the church was started. Right? If you follow the story of the church in the book of Acts, you've got apostles and prophets who went about um, starting the church, uh, proclaiming truth. They were the witnesses of Christ, uh, his death and his resurrection, his life, and they were able to be accurate witnesses of that. So you've got apostles and prophets. Um, just a funny thing here. Someone sent this to me on the word prophet. Um, prophets aren't, I don't most people, I don't know, we'll just tell the story. Um, Vanessa sent me this story, I loved it. It was a story about a runner. Uh, he ran, it was running like a 10K half marathon or something, and he wanted to be a witness for Jesus. And so instead of his name on his running bib, he wrote the word Jesus saves on there so that everybody who saw him would just think, well, Jesus saves, that's a great witness as you're running, okay? And so he was running and then he collapsed. He went into cardiac arrest. And so Jesus saves runner guy, falls flat on the race, and is dying, but guess who the nurse behind him was? It was a uh, Hispanic man by the name of Jesus uh, who came and, and who did CPR on him. So it was, he was a prophet. He was accurate that Jesus does save, but he should have put, Jesus saves me, okay? Because Jesus saved his life in the race, okay? That had nothing to do with anything except the word prophet made me think of that, and that's a funny story, okay? And so, um, so be careful what you write on your bib if you're going to go run. That's, I guess, is the moral of the story. But it's just this picture where Jesus gives gifts, and the gifts that he gave are people. And so the question as we get through this, to equip his people for works of service. And I would just ask you, sometimes in our Sunday school class this morning, we kind of camped out in this verse of what does it mean for us to, as a church leader or as a leader in any kind of ministry place, that Paul's ex exhort, exhortation is not to just that the leaders go and do it, but it's to equip people to do it. And so I would just ask you two questions. Again, we're going to come back to this in January, but just ask this question of yourself. As you wrestle with what does that mean? What does that mean for the preachers? What does that mean for uh, those who sit in, in the seats? It, how does that work together in the partnership? What should we be expecting of each other? And I would just ask a couple of questions. Jot them down. Think about them as you can't sleep in the nighttime sometime. So question number one is this. Are we conditioned to be consumers? Or I would also add, or contributors. Does our culture con condition us to be a consumer or a contributor to other causes. I would say that mostly our culture conditions us to be consumers, right? I, I'm always looking for how is this going to meet my needs? How does this fit with me? Um, instead of the first question asking, I have gifts from God, here I am, where can I use them? Instead of what can, they, what can be done for me? And so um, are we conditioned to be consumers or contributors? And the second one is just like it is, is church about serve us or is it about service? Um, and Paul's answers, or his directions that, that those leaders were sent, given to equip the church to do the ministry implies that it should be about contribution, about service as we mature in our faith. And so um, just things to think about is about what do we expect? Um, there's a whole lot more we could talk about that, but we need to move along. Last thing is this. Thirdly is we'll go quickly with this one. I just want you to know that see how as you finish this text that Paul talks a lot about how we grow our capacity for God to work in and through us when we further ourselves in Christ-like maturity. So there's unity, there's ministry, and there's maturity. And as we grow in all three of those things, our capacity to make a difference collectively grows. 
And so I just want you to think about, well, if one of your prayers in your life is, God, I'd like to make a bigger difference for you through my life. I think this is a passage that leads us to some of that. Right? How am I doing in pursuing unity with other brothers and sisters? How am I doing at exploring and trying to really grow and seeing my life as, as boy, I've got, I've got ministry things I can be doing, and that has, may have nothing to do with the walls in this building. I hope you serve here. That's a great thing. But I hope it's much bigger than that in your mind, that, that when you go to work, your school places, your, your communities, your neighborhoods, um, those are ministry places that you get to be a part of. And so, and the last, what Paul talks about is that we further ourselves as we mature. Just listen to these texts. I'm not going to say much about it. We'll kind of unpack these themes in other sermons. But just listen to what he says. We, he equips the church to do ministry so that the body of Christ may be built up. Again, just if you were to go through and underline, I think actually I highlighted them. If you were just look at all the phrases where Paul really emphasizes the church needs to grow up. And for the church to grow up, individual Christians must grow up. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity. There's our first point. In the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And we become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Again, that picture of Christ filling us completely is a recurring theme. And I don't mean that in some supernatural uh, weird way. I mean just through his character, through your thinking, through your actions, through your speaking, through your choices. He goes on to say this in verse 14. That then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful schemings. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And finally, this beautiful description, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now we'll come back to some of these themes in the next few weeks, so we won't camp here long. But I just want you to see the importance that staying where you are in your Christian walk First, doesn't, that isn't what God wants for you. And second of all, if you're just kind of camping where you are, you're drifting backwards. You're either going forward or you're drifting backwards in this whole faith thing. Um, and the same eagerness, the same every effort that we, Paul asked for for unity, I think is implied to the whole text. He's implying that we got to give every effort to mature ourselves in our thinking. He talks about that, how we, our thinking needs to grow. We need to continue to learn and grow in our thinking, our loving. He talks about how we, we speak the truth in love, our communication, all of those kind of things, working together, the unity. All of those things create maturity in our life. And so God wants us to be a people of greater capacity, a greater capacity to serve, to love, to be just his people, be a stronger character in, in this community and uh, that's going to happen when we grow in unity, when we grow in ministry, when we grow in maturity. So I want to finish with this. Um, if you go, I believe it's in the Hearn Center in Columbia, um, there's a jersey hanging in the rafters of a, of a lady by the name of Joni Davis who wore the number 33 for the University of Missouri Tigers back in the years 1981 to 1985. Some of you might remember that. I don't. Um, and so, but she played from Mizzou, had a great career, and um, they retired her number uh, many years later. This semester, this fall, a talented freshman by the name of uh, Asia Blackwell has joined the team in Mizzou. And uh, she's the daughter of the late Ernest Blackwell, who also played for Mizzou on the football team and uh, passed away in a rather dramatic, violent kind of thing. It was a very sad story. 
He was drafted by the Chiefs, had a lot of successes, but just he, he died about 10 years ago. And so Asia's grown up, her dad's deceased, and so she always had the number 33 in her mind. And if she went to Mizzou, she was going to try to wear that because of that connection her dad played, wore that number. She wanted to do that. But that number was retired in the rafters, and so she was not going to be able to do that. And so she had settled on the number 32. It was close enough. And so she was going to wear that. Um, but Mizzou's women's coach, Robin Pinkston, um, I think I said that name right, knew of this dilemma, knew of the story, knew of the situation, and so she struck up a conversation with Joni Davis, um, who previously wore the number 33. And Joni, as she heard this story, she was glad to let Asia wear her number. And uh, there was a video that just had a video uh, message that Joni sent to Asia saying about the number 33. And I just want you to listen to this because I think it, it wraps up what Paul is trying to tell us here today. So go ahead and play that if you would. We had some kind of connection. I felt so proud of you and I felt so proud to be like a part of this and to be able to make this happen for you. Uh, all right, Asia's gonna come here. She don't know we got a little gift. Bring this number to life. It's yours now. It's been hanging up there lifeless for 34 years and this is your opportunity to bring this number to life so what i'm asking you to do is really own it make it your own and i'll be watching look my friend i'll see you soon number to life now. It's been hanging up there lifeless in the rafters for 34 years. And when you think of what Ephesians 4 is leading us to, I think so much it can become lifeless, right? If you've done church for a long time, you forget the beauty of unity and the power of unity. And you forget um, just the beauty of being in the game, right? Of ministry, of serving people, of helping people on purpose for Jesus. And, and just the the beautiful path of just growing in your faith and allowing Jesus to grow and stretch you and allowing, instead of it just being a, just a dusty old thing, you just go do once a week for an hour and it doesn't have any effect on the rest of your life. The way Paul's calling us to see, just blow the dust off, make this alive, own it, wear it, um, make it yours again. And I love our little phrase, I'll be watching. And I think Paul would say to his people in Ephesians that the Lord is watching as well because he greatly, um, powerfully wants us to embrace the unity and the ministry and the maturity that allows um, our capacity to be more for him.